Welcome to the Next Up Podcast. During this episode, me and Nisha had the opportunity to speak with my good friend, Kayla Beyer, who is the founder and CEO of Deeply Rooted Farms. Kayla has over 15 years of food industry experience and is a proud mama of five. She advocates for cleaner food labels for children, was raised on a dairy farm, and currently resides on a working beef and crop farm in Cannon Falls, Minnesota. She is an honored Future Farmers of America alumni, and she has volunteered for Meals on Wheels for over 10 years. Kayla also holds a Juris Doctorate with a certificate in food law and business law, and currently serves as vice chair of the Mitchell Hamlin School of Law Food Advisory Board in Minnesota. Let's get into this episode. All right, so we are here at the Next Up podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm here with Nisha, as always, and my good friend, Kayla Fire. Kayla, how are you doing? Great. How are you, Marlon? Nisha? <laughs> We're doing amazing. We're really excited for today's conversation. I know it's been a long time coming. I think we've we've talked about the amazing things that you guys are, are doing, and Today, we're going to spend the majority of time talking about how all this came to be, learn a little bit of the backstory, and talk a little bit about the daily life of Kayla. Like, what happens on a daily basis? What does it look like when you wake up in the morning to the time that you go to bed? And so, I am pumped for this conversation. Marlon and I had a little bit of a precursor yesterday and we were like getting into a whole bunch of stuff and we were like, wait, we got to wait for the podcast. We have so many questions about this. Um, so yeah, Kayla, this. This yeah. Is, so to me, Kayla is like a superhero. So this is like an origin story. So Kayla, hit us with the origin story. How did this all begin? <laughs> oh, how far back do you want me to go, Marlon? <laughs> <laughs> as far as you need to go. So we, we know you're into farming and you're actually kind of involved with involved with different types of farming, but mm-hmm. what what got you into that as a child, a young adult, an adult, I don't know. And then how what how do you get to deeply rooted from being a farmer? Yeah, so I was born and raised on a dairy farm. Um pretty active. I was only only girl. Um so sometimes I had to help with cooking and cleaning, but a lot of times I was outside. Um, How many brothers did you have? Two older brothers. Okay. Yep. So, (laughs) yes, I'm the baby. Um, And I had something to prove, right? So, (laughs) um, so every day we'd get up between four and five because my, my dad was really good about pushing snooze, but we'd milk the cows. Um, and then go to school and then come home and you have to have 12 hours between milking. So if you milked at 4.30, you'd milk at 4.30 at night. Why? Um, because that's the time it takes to get them to reproduce. Okay. Um, some farmers milk three times a day. We chose to do it twice and they need to be routine. Animals love routines. So. I would love to see Misha try and milk a cow. You know, I've, <laughs> honestly done it before i was just about to say i was like it sounds like marlon's never been out to a farm which <laughs> i don't like getting my hands dirty <laughs> which out of the two of us is a huge surprise like <laughs> um so kayla i mean i think that 
you know, that kind of schedule as a child probably taught you a whole bunch, right? About consistency, about discipline. I mean, I don't think, you know, I'm picturing my own life here and, or, you know, the urban life. And it's a lot different than, than the way that even your kids are, are raised out there. And so what do you think that taught you from a very early age? Um, I think the biggest lesson, and we're still struggling to teach our kids this despite living on a working farm right now, but, you know, the animals get fed, then we feed ourselves, and then we get to play, right? So Saturdays where everybody else got to go and maybe do sports or, or whatnot, hang out with friends, Saturdays were our work days, so we would... um. And then summer, obviously, you work all summer, but you milk in the morning, you milk at night. And then on Saturdays during the day, you're picking up the yard, you're mowing the lawn, you're um, cleaning up around the farm, you're baling hay, picking rock, whatever is going on, whatever part of the season it is. Um, but Sundays, we love Sundays because we'd get to wake up, milk, go to church, um, and then we have the day off, and then we'd have to milk, you know, at 4.30 or 5 o'clock at night. So even despite having to still put in four hours of milking, that was our day off and you work and then you get to play. So I think that's what that taught me. And like I said, with my kids, um, their kids, they get a little lazy and my husband reiterates, like you don't eat until you feed your animals. You don't get to play until the work here is done. So, um, that's kind of how my days go. Um, even with Deeply Rooted, I get up. I'm not very routine. I think having grown up with that, getting up so early in the morning, I hate getting up early in the morning. Hate it. I know it's what I should do. Yeah, I find that shocking. Yeah, well, I should do it. But I think, you know, my husband and I both grew up on dairy farms and he had he had pigs too. And they farrowed the pigs. They had baby pigs coming all the time, which is quite the process because um, usually you want to be out there with the, the sows but um, I didn't have to go through that we just milked but both of us I mean he still gets up and has a really good routine um, me not so much I really drag my feet in the morning and I guess I'm thankful I'm not milking cows <laughs> I'm like you know I'm not gonna get moving until eight o'clock today so so I mean that leads me to you grew up on a dairy farm and you just mentioned, thank God I'm not milking cows. So how how is what you're doing now different from what you grew up in? So right now um, we have beef and crops. And actually we do have some, I think, five to six pigs. And my husband's going to get more right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> like literally right now? <laughs> yeah, literally right now. After he goes, you know, picks up the one kid from school because she's at the nurse's office. But um <laughs> He's off today from work, so he's he's playing farmer, which is great because he has a full time job, um, and what he's is, trying. What's his full time job? What does he do on the side? Or I guess. Well, yes. <laughs> so he's a nuclear engineer. Um, he runs a nuclear power plant, and a day in his operations is very different from a day in mine. Um, but yeah, he he went through the Navy route and got his education there. So he served two deployments, um, you know, the war on terrorism, 9-11. And then uh, I think his ship was one of the first to go out after 9-11. His, 
um, wow. fighter jets were deployed. Um, Man, your husband's a bad dude. <laughs> so yeah, he lived seven stories under the, you know, ocean, I guess. And not one for cruises, by the way, Marlon. Oh, she's saying if I just invited her to a cruise and she was like, nah, not this time. Well, no, I'm like, yeah. I told him this morning, I said, hey, by the way, Marlon invited us on a four-day cruise. And he goes, doesn't he know it's planning and calving season? I said, I told him that. I'm like, what's that? No, no, he did not know that. I had no idea. You know, I want to go work on your farm one day. I think that would be an experience and funny. It would Maybe be a little hilarious. bit on my part. Yeah. Hilarious. So you saw the picture. Do you have that picture of Lily driving? You've met Lily. I've met Lily. Hey, Calissa, can you pull up the picture of Lily on the tractor? <clears throat> and so can you give us a little bit of background? So who's Lily? So this was a couple of years ago. Um, and every spring you have to clean out from the winter because the cattle can't roam on the pasture because obviously we live in Minnesota and there's tons of snow and it's not good for them. Um, and so they're kind of focused or put in one area. Um, and so you have to clean it out. So she's actually spreading manure right now on the fields. So then we don't have to buy as much fertilizer. Um, and we're really trying not to at all. We're trying to eliminate that, but um, this helps in that um, really good natural fertilizer. Yeah. So, so can you talk to us a little bit about the two different types of farms you have and then how they play off of each other um, in terms of processing beef or deeply rooted? Yep. So we, we have the beef cattle, we have about 125 and it's interesting because my husband and I growing up on farms and working so hard all day long and it's just really intense and it's emotional because working with so many animals is emotional. You know, they, they're born and then they, they die and it's really hard sometimes because you do grow attached to the animals. But, um, we went, both went off to college, right? He went the Navy route and then got his four year degree and then masters. And I went, um, got my four year and then my JD. Right. And so we were like, you know, we're never going to have our kids grow up the way that we did. We just worked too hard. Um, and then we lived in the city and we we're like, this is not the life that we want for us or the kids. We want to get them back on the farm. So we came back to the farm and you, it's very expensive to get into farming. If someone just doesn't give it to you, like a generational kind of handoff, if you will. Right. Like my older brother's taking over my parents' farm. Um, so we bought about 80 acres from Wade's dad and that's soybeans and corn. And a lot of that goes, which is not much. I mean, nowadays, if you don't have thousands of acres, you have to have a day job to support your quote unquote hobby. Right. Yeah. And so, and Kayla, I actually, you know, what's interesting is, um, I read somewhere that over 50% of like land goes towards agriculture. Is that true? It very well could be. Um, there's and, a t I mean, it's crazy to think that so much of our land is devoted, like, you know, devoted to, to agriculture, which I think there's this concept of just making sure that, you know, that 
there's some sort of ecological just, you know, due diligence to are we making, are we providing the right resources? Are we making sure that we're, um, what is that concept called, by the way, when, when you're being eco-friendly towards your farming practices? So you have regenerative egg practices. Mm. Um, it just depends what people call it. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. What is that something that you guys practice as well? Yes. So in that picture, I think that was just um, flashed. My husband's, um, I believe he is, yeah, it's kind of hard to see. He's way, way down there. But, On a tractor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think he might be rolling over some earth there. I'm not sure. Um, that's my backyard, which is a great view. <laughs> what a backyard. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like there was corn in the field across. I think that might be alfalfa. That might be third crop hay. Um, I took that last fall, so that would maybe make sense. But yeah, so you know, we started acquiring all this land. You kind of acquire it bit by bit, and because that's all you can afford to do. Like I said, if someone just doesn't give you give you it, um, and then we have they usually say one acre per animal. So. Um, we bought another parcel of 90 plus acres and that's pasture for the animals to go because we'd rather have them out and not just keep them in a feedlot. Um, you know, you've seen those feedlots where it's just like, you feel bad. Um, our animals aren't, um, we don't do that. We like them to roam. So we've had to acquire more land so they can eat grass. They're not hundred percent grass fed. We live in Minnesota. So you can't in the winter, right? Um, but we try to get them out. It saves on money, obviously, so you don't have to buy feed. Um, it's it's better for the regenerative egg practices, right? So um, you you know you've probably heard where they take like an acre and they put animals on it and then they move the padlocks around and then they harvest what, whatever or plant where the animals were and you can have a really sustainable um, kind of a four acre square um, where you kind of move the animals around and then they, they eat the grass and then they, you know, they have their manure that's fertilizing. And then um, you kind of just keep moving them around and then you plant whatever it is there. Um, and so that's the idea more of, I think regenerative egg is like a really bigger, broader picture um, but I'm trying to think of the term when you're letting the animals do a lot of the work for you. And that's where to your ask Marlon was how did both, both benefit, right? So the biggest thing with regenerative egg is that years and years of these farmers believing they have to till up the earth, um, every fall, then it snows and then in the spring, you have all this black dirt, dirt exposed, right? But if you planted a cover crop or didn't till, a couple things happen. One, all the years of tilling, they make the soil more compacted and not as aerated, if you think about it. Okay, um, you're going to have to like back way up. <laughs> I know what, what is, aerated means. <laughs> what is tilling? 
tilling. So, you know, you plant your crop, whether it's corn, soybeans, alfalfa for the animals, for hay. Alfalfa is hay. Um, and you want to go in there, you do crop rotation, right? So you're putting different crops in different fields to help. And are these all crops that you have on your farm? What's that? Are these all crops that you have on your farm? Okay. Yep. So we're buying more land to feed our animals, to pasture our animals. So you have fields. This I feel like, like we need a whiteboard. You know what I mean, Merlin? Like, <laughs> yeah. I'd be like drawing Sorry. arrows right I didn't now. Know. Animal. Okay. Like, I'd be go drawing cow. Plant. <laughs> okay. So you have pasture, Merlin. You know what a pasture is, right? It's just like yeah. an open. Okay. Um. So that's where you we're calling me out. Me to the one that asked for explanations, all right? <laughs> <laughs> for you, for you. She knew it was for you. <laughs> so the cows, they benefit because they, the pastures usually have woods and grass. And so they naturally tromp, you know, trample over all that. If they have calves, they, they look for shelter with the woods. And so it's great. That's, we love to see in the spring when our animals get back on pasture, it's, you know, we crack a beer, right? Um, then you have fields where you're planting, you're physically out there with a tractor, planting rows and rows of whatever it is. And depending on what it is, so you have corn, like for us, corn, soybeans, alfalfa, and now we're doing more cover crops so that, and we want to get to pea. What peas. does that mean? Peas. Okay. We'll, we'll get to peas. We're working on the peas so that I can, all of our, all of our peas come from the Midwest, but we don't harvest peas that go into the deeply rooted products yet. And that's our goal. Um, so the cover crop is in the fall when you go to dig up whatever you put in that field, cause you're getting it ready for the next spring for the, whatever new crops, let's say you had soybeans in this field next year you might put corn there okay mm. so you want to dig up kind of the old soybeans um and then you're going to plant corn well if farmers just planted a cover crop in the fall like winter wheat for example there would be green there and it would be covering the soil so that the soil wasn't exposed to to the elements right so now you have a cover crop that's going to be there. Now it snows in the springtime. Now you have something there, not just barren earth. Hmm. And what happens is that cover crop that's there, it absorbs CO2 emissions. So there's all these really cool studies out there. And that's the theory of regenerative ag. There's all these studies out there that if these mega, mega farmers that have thousands and thousands of land, I'm going to call out Bill Gates for a second because I'm pretty sure he's the largest um, farm owner or owner of farmland in the U.S. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, so if some of these and and he's he's likely renting it to farmers and then they actually plant and produce it. That happens all the time. Right. Um, but if these mega mega farmers like, yes, what we're doing on our couple hundred acres is is matters to us because we know that we're doing something better for the CO2 emission issue. But if these bigger farmers did that, then it would absorb a ton of CO2 emissions just by planting a, a cover crop. 
right? Why aren't they doing it? Is it just because it's it's too uh, financially stressful or they're lazy or what? No, it's it's money and time. Um, I mean, it, it, the same could be said, like, so if you think about tall rows of corn, right? Like you look down rows of corn, Marlon, do you know what corn looks like in a field? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've been to Indiana, I know. (laughs) So think if you had a shorter crop in between those rows, right? That would help that all that black dirt not be exposed and it could help with some CO2 emissions, right? But they don't do that because I think of it like, um, I don't know. I like think of big pharma, but like big, big fertilizer or chemical companies in the ag world, they want you to get upset that there's a little weed in between your rows of whatever, soybeans, corn, like, oh, you must spray for that. That must be bad. So when you take out all those weeds, but to us, those weeds, they're there because there's there's something off. There's a mis- There's a balance imbalance in the soil or whatever, right? Oh, I was hoping you were going to say you want the weeds that way. I, I could tell my wife to stop bugging me about the weeds <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think you want the weeds because I think it helps. You know, it. We've just done all this. We've done all this work to get to farming where it is, and. All these farmers get upset. My husband used to be one where you'd like walk and look at your fields and fields of soybeans and you could see the weeds and they'd get so upset. And then they call the farm, the, the big sprayer guy and the big sprayer guy would come and spray between the rows so that there's no weeds. Cause you don't want to be the guy that's got the weeds in his field. Cause they'll talk about that at church on Sunday. Right. <laughs> and I've even seen planes, like the, some of the fields behind us, they don't, they're not ours. But one day when we first moved here, I was like, what is that noise? And I stood on the four-wheeler and there's a plane spraying for weeds. So that's a big thing up here. So it is like such a stigma to a farmer to have weeds. And I'm like, you need, we've spent, you spend, these big spender, these big farmers spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on pesticides and fertilizers so they don't have weeds yeah you know it's so interesting to me Kayla because it sounds like from your perspective implementing and scaling just this type of farming practice is probably really challenging and you probably it's labor intensive and you know because I'm imagining that there's not as much support in this certain arena as opposed to like, you know, the private sector, right? The big scale farmers who have, you know, bigger production companies and things like that. But then you did like, this is just one notch, right? There's a whole other side of you taking what you're doing and the farming practice what you're of what you're doing. And you mentioned something just, just a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned a brand named Deeply Rooted and we haven't even touched that. Like we've spent all of this time just talking about farming practices and the background there. And we haven't even gotten to, well, what are you doing with all of that? And you brought something to market that I think it, 
you know, has significant value in the market that's completely different. And it's almost like the why behind Deeply Rooted, but we haven't even touched Deeply Rooted <laughs> yet. So I kind of want to get into, well, the, when somebody, like, first of all, what led you to wanting to build that brand? What is it? What are you promising people at the end of the day? I think they already got it. I think that we've kind of like led there, but like, let's get into that story now. Cause I feel like this is the output of all of the great work that you're doing. Right. And we need to somehow blend both of these stories together. And what because... you're saying is stop teasing us. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I want to know. Yeah. Cause I think, every, I think it deserves, it's it's chance it's spotlight and i'd love if we could talk a little bit about that as well yeah so one day i came home well let me even go back further than that i remember going to anaheim to natural products expo west right it's the biggest trade show um in the u.s for the food space and oh my gosh it was probably like 2013 maybe and I remember someone saying uh my very vegan co-worker was like you need to go to this booth there's a burger and it bleeds and it's not it's made of plants I was like wow that is super cool that's really cool technology you know I've been in the food industry um for 15 plus years I worked for Hormel out of college believe it or not weirdly enough I did not I worked in their supplement division I did not work with pepperoni or spam or any of that, but I was proud to work for them, top-notch CPG. Um, so I'm going to these trade shows and I'm seeing a plant-based product that's bleeding. That's not meat. And what does I that mean? Like, it's bleeding. So they, they used, I think, beet juice so that when you kind of bite into the uh. burger, they call it a, a heme. I'm not an expert in this, but know a little bit and I was like well what kind of a vegan is going to want their burger to bleed that seems like really counterintuitive right no that's not yeah well Nisha aren't you you eat plant-based yeah I do right? and I don't want my burger to bleed I don't even, <laughs> I didn't even know what that was I was like well, what does that mean <laughs> yeah so I guess I thought that was really cool technology from just the evolution of um bringing more awareness. So when I worked at Hormel, I worked with whey protein, right? I grew up on a dairy farm and I didn't even know what whey protein was until I literally got hired by Hormel. Like how shocking is that? Isn't and it just protein pro based on uh, dairy? <laughs> well, so it was like, yes, we make protein shakes for all the big um, bodybuilding brands out there now more mainstream. But at the time it was just bodybuilders were the only ones eating plant protein, or excuse me, um, whey protein. And so over the course of my, you know, career at Hormel, I'm like more people were eating plant, now dried plant protein in a powder form. Um, they used to feed the whey to the pigs, I guess. And now it can be anywhere from nine to, or down to $5 a pound. So learning different meats, meats, proteins, if you will, um, that people can, digest it doesn't just have to be meat you know i grew up in a world where you drink milk and you eat the meat because you you butchered something and now it's in your freezer right like that's the world i came from so working for this division of hormel was really eye-opening like oh this is really cool so then i learned the properties of all dried things 
proteins, whether it was egg or pea or dairy or whatever. Um, collagens. I remember collagens thinking this is nuts, but this is a form of protein apparently. So um, I've been in kind of that, that uh, mindset and then coupled with these are shelf stable. So how do you get something to be shelf stable, right? Like what do those properties look like? Um, nothing we shipped was frozen or kept in our, uh, in a cold storage unit. So I was talking to a friend probably in like 2017, 2018. And, you know, everyone's talking about the really cool plant-based burgers that are bleeding. Right. And I didn't know how they were made. And I stumbled across upon these these crumbles and they were like, they kind of look like rice. They were super small and like, wow, that's interesting. How much protein's in this? And started asking questions. And then I'm like, well, what if, what if I created something that was shelf stable? Cause that's the world that I came from. I know what that looks like. And I'm a huge nerd in food safety. That's something. Well, are you a food scientist also? So I have a biology degree, and then with all the contract work that I did at Hormel, I chose to go back to law school to get my doctorate and studied food safety. Um, And so I wrote my thesis on supply chain, blockchain, and food recall. Um, And so the lower, usually the lowest risk, a lower risk is something that's shelf-stable that you cook. So I'm like, okay. I love this piece of information. And I'll tell you why in like two seconds after you finish. (laughs) Um, So I started digging into it a little bit and seeing if I could get a better crumble. Not that was so small. It looked like a piece of rice. I wanted to, to have something that emulated not too much, but emulated ground beef. Right? Like I didn't want it to bleed. And around the same time, I think Impossible came out with their burger out, um, Burger King and went and tried that. And I thought it was pretty good. Um, so I, re- I came home and I told my husband, I'm like, okay, sit down. I have a business idea because I had promised both of us after law school that I would find our own passion you know, he's got the farm and and he's raising his beef and he's doing direct to consumer and he wants to cut out retail and there's too much markup and his mission. I didn't really have mine, you know? And so I was like, what if I made a shelf stable plant-based meat that people just could add water and cook and they can, it would be great for, you know, I was thinking like MREs for the military or just third world countries that don't have good access to food um, or just pantry loading as a mom of, as a mom of five, like I forget to, I forget to pull out meat all the time. So I was telling him this and I'm like, okay, what do you think? And I was kind of waiting and he's like, I think that's a fantastic idea. That's, that's the best idea I've ever heard. I was like, really? Plant-based meat? He's like, yeah, totally. Why? Why did he say, why do you think it was a great idea? And he's a beef farmer. 
Well, he's like, first of all, when you're business minded, like he is, it's like be diversified. Right. And there are people that we come across that they're like, you know, well, I don't eat meat. So that now he's like, well, my wife has something for you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say this, like one of the, I think plant-based proteins has had just, it's like from a trending perspective, I think that it's not only because it's so health, you know, we've got so many other folks right now that when it's, it's healthier than, than say eating a bunch of, you know, red meat. But I think the fact that it's, Back in the day, there was, what, only, like, two different types of plant-based protein. It was, like, the tofurkey stuff and something else, and it was, like, really chewy. And -hmm. now you've gotten to the point where you can't really taste the difference. And so I think most people sort of lean towards the plant-based diets. And the comment that you made about shelf-stable, I think, is is so interesting, right? Like, I I, what I find – I think inspiring about your vision is how specific it was. Marlon and I have these conversations all the time about like what if scenarios, right? Like we'll be like, what if we did this? But our vision is like, what if we went to Jamaica and filmed a documentary? A documentary. And then we're like, we don't know what it's about. We don't know. Like, like we, there's like lacks focus, right? But versus your vision was like shelf stable, plant based, like so specific. Rice. <laughs> right. So specific. And I love that. I love that there was like a focus as soon as like from the get-go. Um and so when with I mean, how long how long has it been since you've started down this path with deeply rooted? And then can you talk a little bit about success stories? I'd love to talk a little bit about where you guys are now and what you're hoping to do as far as expansion. Hold on a second. Before we get into all that, yeah. I want to know how long it took from having the conversation with your husband to actually launching the company. Oh, yeah. And what was that like? It was two years. Um, I think two years because I had to... Well, you know, I was coming from a world I knew dried powders. I didn't know extruded products. I knew pea protein powder because I'd worked with it at Hormel and supplements, but I didn't know how do you extrude that. So, um, okay, can we pause? I'm in a sidetrack. How do you feel about pea protein? Me? Yes. Knowing all that you know about, you know, various different types of plant protein powders, what's what's your take on pea protein? How, what's our hot take? Okay. From a scientific standpoint, um, it's almost a complete protein, meaning that it has all the amino acids that it needs to. Like whey is a complete protein. So I look at it that way. Like I don't care where my protein comes from as long as I'm getting more of a complete protein. I think it's phenomenal that they figured out that pea has protein. It's not an allergen and they can process it and people will eat it. I think that's awesome, right? Hmm. Because when I started in this industry... There was no pea protein. It was just Wait, whey. So peas aren't an allergen? I thought it was part of the big eight. Or am I completely off? Nope. 
Nope. No. It's not. Now, anything that's a protein can be allergenic because the protein from all these foods is what causes the allergic reaction. So there are people, a very, very small percent, that could be allergic to pea protein, okay? Mm. So, yeah, my hot take is that it's a great form of – it's another great form of protein. So typically – when somebody's plant-based and they need a recommendation for a complete protein, where do you lean towards? Do you lean so, towards? So complete, yeah. So it just, it just depends because a lot of pea proteins out there, they will add the amino acids that are lacking. Um, and so it can be a complete protein. Pea can be. Um way I think eggs might be a complete protein I guess I don't I don't mm. have that at the ready in my, the back of my mind it's been a couple of years since I've looked at it but yeah you mentioned collagen that's that's been I think interesting as well in that that's realm that one. And I, remember, yeah. I remember like I'm like bovine I think it was vital proteins years and years and years ago mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my god this brand's gonna die because who is gonna eat this oh my gosh and then Nestle scooped them up, Nestle Health Sciences, and they're rocking and rolling. It's a great brand. So I just think it's cool, like bone broth too. Same same thing. Like how do you get more holistic foods? Like I obviously know that you have to process the peas. You dry the peas and extract the protein. Like I get that. And collagen, it's the same thing. You're extracting things from a thing. Um, but we're not eating, I think, as a whole, we're understanding that there's other options and other ways to get your nutrients other than just a processed food. You know, I used to tell my kids, if it doesn't have a mom or didn't come directly from the earth, don't eat it. So, but the truth is everything, a lot of things come somehow, even synthetic things are made from things that come from the earth, right? Yeah. So that's this whole conversation about scratch cooking with K-12 um, and processed foods because there's really no definition. And so it's been so wild. So you mentioned K-12. Whenever you launched Deeply Rooted, did you go straight into K-12 or did you go to retail first? No, interestingly enough. Um, so it took two years to develop, find the right protein content because it just it didn't exist. Find the right extrusion size, particle size. So it emulated ground beef. And then we had to flavor it because now you're flavoring. And I knew this from the supplement world um, that when you're flavoring peas, it's more earthy. So you need to work harder to get that fl- those flavor notes um, covered up a little bit. So it probably took a year, probably a year to do the flavoring. So we have, we launched with three flavors, Mexican, Korean, barbecue, and Italian. Um, and we went into retail. So we did... At that point, I hired a marketing firm to help um, not only name the brand, but position us because it was a new space on the shelves. Nobody at the time had a shelf-stable plant-based crumble. Everything was in the freezer section. So we were pioneering the the space, and I didn't know this either, but when you go into the shelf in retail, you want to stand out amongst your peers. Well, who are our peer brands? We have no idea where we're sitting. So... Um, it was a big learning curve for us, for me, 
just because I'd always been in the supplement world and I wasn't, I was kind of behind the scenes, um, in mass manufacturing. So, um, we picked some bright colors and we did the packaging and started doing some studies on where it should go. Um, and the marketing firm was like, this is great. Um, you know, it kind of reminds me, should it sit next to Hamburger Helper or not? I'm like, well, I don't know. It's kind of a weird space. And we had thought about putting the crumbles into a meal. So we actually did a meal kit. So it's like Hamburger Helper, but with the protein included. Um, and so that's still on the market in retail um, east of the Mississippi because we haven't quite went west yet because we're so busy with K-12. <laughs> so trying to have controlled growth as all my advisors tell me. Um, so the crumbles do really well. They, they cook up to one pound bags. They sit in retail, depending on the retailer, they sit in different spots. So what are some of the retailers that you guys are in? So we're in Meyer, Jewel Osco. Um, we were in Lowe's in the South and Stop and Shop in the North. So we're in That's all really of That's interesting. You're in Lowe's? We were in Hardware Lowe's. store? Yep. <laughs> No, not the hardware store. Oh, it's a grocery okay. store. Okay, yes. we don't have Lowe's here in Florida that I, that I know of. That's a grocery store. We only have the hardware store. Yeah, we yeah, don't either. No. Um, and so we've tried. It's not. It's a very specialty item, so it's not meant to be everywhere. I know we put it in our little Cannon Falls grocery store, and I was like, it's just not the right demographic here. So, so what um, made you think K twelve was was the right demographic? Right. So we had this whole concept where we have the crumbles. Now we have a meal kit where families can take, like I make the Mexican rice dish and then add eggs and make burritos and send my kids to school. And we were kind of going down that path. And I serve on the um, food law advisory board for Mitchell Hamlin Law. And so does this wonderful woman, Shirley Boyd. And Shirley used to be the VP for Cargill small business based in Minnesota. So Shirley's like, why aren't you in schools? And I'm like, well, I've been so focused on retail, but I'm like, I would absolutely love to be in schools. That's a perfect fit for our mission. You know, um, I just didn't, again, just didn't know. Um, and she's like, let me introduce you to Bertrand. He, he works for Minneapolis public schools. I'm like, okay. Let me talk to Bertrand. <laughs> so met met Bertrand, Bertrand in 2020 via Zoom with things COVID. And I was like, do you think this would be a good fit for schools? He's like, I think it would be awesome for schools. And here's why. And so then I started, you know, going on the USDA site and trying to figure out, does this even meet the requirements for schools? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it does, you know, so um, made, made some specs, uh, based on the meat alternates and sent them to Bertrand. Cause he's like, can I have your specs? I'm like, sure. What's the spec? <laughs> um, so Ferndale market is a Turkey, a cool Turkey farm here in town. Our kids went to daycare together. And somehow I figured out that farmer Joe from Ferndale also sells them to school. So then I'm like, can you, can you help me make a spec? I mean, I know you're with Turkey and mine's plants, but he's like, yeah, I don't really like, I can guide you, but 
you know, you'll, you, you'll f- figure it out. So I, I did, I figured it out. I sent it to Bertrand. He's like, great, let's go. <laughs> like, okay. So, Kayla, I've, I, I feel like at this rate, there's just so much, I think, success that's coming your way. Um, and if you were to have, you know, just a couple of minutes with somebody from the district, somebody from a K-12 district, how would you essentially tell them, like, how would you summarize the value in what you're providing through Deeply Rooted? Like, what's the, what's the takeaway? What do you want people leaving with? So this is probably going to sound really crazy, you guys, but when COVID hit and I worked for a big food company and we couldn't get this ingredient or that ingredient or whatever, I was having anxiety over supply chain and food distribution. Like there's no toilet paper, right? Like we're not going to have enough food. I I literally panicked and I lost like 20 pounds because I was so worried about food. For not my family, because we're fine. <laughs> we, we have freezers full of meat and we have tons of plant-based shelf-stable food. Okay, we're good. <laughs> I was just worried about everybody else. And I remember talking to one of my legal advisors, like my mentor, and he's like, ah, we got enough food in the world. I'm like, okay. Um, but seriously, you know, the population is growing. And I always think about what food insecurity looks like in 25, 50, 75, 100 years, right? And I'm like, are only elitist going to be able to afford meat by that point? I just don't know. And so, you know, there's articles that suggest if you introduce um, foods, plant-based foods to kids at an early age, that their palates start thinking that's more normal versus, you know, in years, we've come so far, society has in accepting it, but we still have a long ways to go. So, it's like, you don't have to be like, I don't have to be a bodybuilder to take a, a whey protein shake. And that's what I've been trying to teach my kids. Like, it's just about getting different sources of protein in your body. You don't need to eat red meat. I physically can't because now I have higher cholesterol. But, you know, when you're raised as a farm kid, you it's ingrained in your DNA. Like you have meat and you have potatoes and that's it. And so if we can get these elementary kids to try different types of foods, I don't care what it is, plant-based foods or anything else, the chances of them adopting it as a norm and society adopting it as a norm is greater in years to come. And that will just pass through generations. Um, And I think, I think kids, not only will they get, will their palates adjust to it, but kids are visual eaters. I mean, we all are, and they want to eat something that looks good. And I think Callista has a picture of one of your dishes that I would like to put up on screen because this looks absolutely delicious. And my kids are the pickiest eaters on the planet. And I'm sure they would love to eat this. So what am I looking at right now? And what are some of the uh, dishes or how are you seeing certain schools use your product in their recipes? So this is courtesy of Prince William. Um, They came to us and said, we want to do an around the world theme and we want a gyro with your plant-based meat. And I'm like... Hold on a second. This came from a school district? This came from Samantha. Yep. Shout out to Samantha Ronk. <laughs> so um, our head of sales, Alyssa, was like, Kayla, we need to have a gyro. And I'm like, I don't have a gyro flavor. 
Um, I don't know how to make a gyro flavor because this isn't lamb meat. This is peas, Alyssa. I don't know if you know that. And she's like, okay, well, I, you know, I just thought I'd ask because Prince William is interested. Was was this the day that I was in Baltimore with you at the Urban School of Food Alliance meeting? Yes. <laughs> okay, I remember this now. <laughs> I know the story. <laughs> so, but I don't. I don't hear it. <laughs> so yeah, I kept fighting it. I'm like, and I'm not. I, I am definitely a yes man. So I don't know why I was so anti-euro, but I'm like, I just don't think it would taste good. So, cause we've done a curry, we've done a chorizo, we've done a little bit of sloppy Joe work. And I'm like, euro, that's just different. Okay. So one day I just said, okay. So I was playing around in the kitchen, you know, doc, like Dr. Google, PhD, food scientist, Google, help me season the euro and came up with this recipe and it tastes amazing. Amazing. So Prince William, we went in when we were out there for the Urban School Food Alliance, presented this to their team of about 15 and they were all like, hands down, this is, this is awesome. You would never know it was not, um, you know, like real beef crumbles or lamb, ground lamb. I don't know. They just, they're like, it's amazing. So, and just to clarify really quick, Prince William is not part of the urban school of food Alliance. You were actually at a USA, USFA meeting the day before, and then you went to Prince William afterwards, right? Logistically it worked to be out there. Um, but we had to scooch down to this meeting and it was a longer drive and traffic and all that fun stuff, but it was so rewarding once we got there, cooked it and presented it. It was it was probably one of my favorite meetings just because I think I think we went in thinking we couldn't do it and they challenged us and challenged us and pushed us and we executed and I was like, wow, this is so there was a lot more successes than just them thinking it tasted great. You know what I mean? Like Yeah. I really- love partnerships like that. This sounds like it was it definitely was a collaborative effort on both parts. Yep. So we're waiting anxiously to see if they're going to menu the Euro for this fall. But other schools have picked up on this too now. And they're like, this looks amazing. Um, And there's different ways you can, you know, you can take a pita and just do a dip and then put the crumbles and it's pretty versatile. So um, I don't even know what your question was about. (laughs) <laughs> how are districts using your using how, your product? <laughs> how it started. Thank you, Samantha. That's how that started. And it's it's got a great story. But a lot of these recipes do. Um, you know, I went to see Aaron out in Seattle and he's like, I don't know, we have you know, we've got a lot of different ethnic groups and they have a lot of different palettes. And I'm like, oh no, like how are we going to you know, we do a pasta, a, a bolognese with the Italian. It tastes wonderful, but I wouldn't say that's super diverse or ethnic or exciting. It's just, mm-hmm. it's kind of a normal staple. Yeah. But you know what I, what I think is interesting about that is that it's pretty subjective, right? The taste itself, right? You know, I think about my son who's six and an incredibly picky eater, which I've talked about many times and um, something like a pasta with a plant-based meat would be diverse for him because that's mm-hmm. not what he typically eats at home, right? True. We're, we're Indian, we eat curries, we, you know, there's a lot of that at home. And so when he goes to school and he sees something like that, it's different for him. Um, so it's also encouraging, I think, you know, folks of a diverse background to 
open their palates on something that they might not typically see at home because they're eating something else. And so I just think it's so wonderful that there is such a rich mission behind something that might seem so simple as shelf-stable plant-based protein meat and not meat, just plant-based protein. But there's like this beautiful backstory as far as what you're hoping to do. And the mission is so much greater than just that one thing, right? It's not just about that plant-based protein. It's about making sure that there's some sort of sustainability in what we're consuming over the next couple of years. It's about making sure that kids open their palates. There's like so much variety to this. And I truly appreciate the thought that you've put behind this brand. Um, I hope that we can help tell your story. And I hope that, you know, you see a ton of success in the next couple of years, because I, I think that like, there's just, there's so much more to this than just the, the packet itself. Right. Um, and so kudos to you, Kayla, for building such an amazing brand. And if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? So we, uh, we are all over social media. Um, so I think y'all have the handles for that. Um, you can go to our website too, uh, eatdeeplyrooted.com. And there's a section where you can put in your information and it sends me personally. I respond to all of those, uh, inquiries that come it's through. It's not a bot. It's not some sort of AI responding. <laughs> nope. It's, it's me. <laughs> so we went, we went to that Minnesota. I spoke at the Minnesota directors meeting last Friday and I had about five of the districts who hadn't came up, you know, come up to me during the meeting. And they're, I think they all reached out via the website and it was great. Um, That's awesome. So I can just respond right away. But yep, I manage that communication. Um, I think I'm going to reach out via your website and make a request for a new um, recipe concept. <laughs> or I'm just going to tell you now. I want a Jamaican beef patty with your crumbles on the inside. Oh. Yeah, that's what I want to try. <laughs> Is that possible? Are you trying to one-up Samantha on this or what? <laughs> I, I absolutely am. <laughs> so we've had a couple school districts um, that have said they're going to replace meat, ground beef, and put in our crumbles um, for either the remaining of the school year or even throughout the whole school year next year, which I cannot believe. Um, and again, telling my husband this because we're kind of com competition kind of not. He's like, I mean, how many, like, how, how many times a day can you eat ground beef? Like, honestly, or <laughs> beef in general, you know, like, come on, honey, I, I'm fully aware that this is, this is so exciting. Um, and then this one school that did replace for next year for the crumbles to that same tune is like, how many times can you eat crumbles? Right. So now they're like, can we have patties? And I'm like, oh boy. Okay. So, yes, we can try to develop a patty, but then you're adding fillers. And, and one thing that we've been big about is being non-allergenic and not having a bunch of fillers on our ingredient deck. That's super important to me. So our product is peas and spices, and there's nothing else in there. And we're very open about that. 
So you just told me no, Nisha. <laughs> make an exception. So I can I can try to make your Jamaican patty, but I don't know what kind of weird stuff I'm gonna have to put in there to keep it all, you know, coagulated or together. Like you need mm-hmm. to use an emulsifier to hold it, like an egg or panko or something. I can try. Okay, I appreciate that. Maybe when you come up in June, I can I can give you something. Yeah, you should make me work on the farm too. You know what? I want to make my own Jamaican beef patty, and I want to do all the tilling, all the planting, all of that stuff. <laughs> oh I'm going to harvest my own my own peas, and I'm going to make a Jamaican beef I hope beef somebody's patty. there to record all this. <laughs> oh, somebody will be there. So we have, we have fair um, show cattle that they're really well taken care of. Our kids walk them every day and you, you put a whole, like a dog kind of, you know, how dogs have leashes. Like I, I think we have a picture of that. Don't we? We do. Well, Raina's kissing. There's one with my daughter kissing her fair animal. Oh, yes. Reba. That's, so cute. That's, cute. That's cute. Well, I actually have one more picture I wanted to show in closing. It took me like literally 10 minutes to find it on my phone. But remember this? <laughs> this is us in oh the kitchen. I was actually in a kitchen with Deeply Rooted as they were preparing to um, to present or to do a tasting with the large group of food service directors. And from what I heard from them, it went really, really well. And they were happy to have you um, at their meeting. And Kayla, we are happy to have you here. Your story is incredible. I feel like you only just scratched the surface. And we might need like a part two, three, four, and five to uh to, to continue down your success and just your desire to be better provide something better to be good for people and the planet and i appreciate that i'm sure a lot of people out there do too thank so, you uh, thank you for yeah. hosting this has been awesome no Love problem thank you for being here yep and everybody if you want to learn more about kayla and deeply rooted you can look on her website deeplyrooted.com.com yep and then we'll make sure we share all the social media handles and links and all that good stuff so kayla nisha thanks again for hanging out with me and uh talk to you guys later thank you marlon thank you nisha produced by next gen network